Hey there, OCD family community, and welcome back to the OCD family podcast. Today, we're spilling the tea on autism and OCD for this third and final part of the Autism and OCD miniseries with the wonderful Dr. Jeremy Schumann. So what are we waiting for, you guys? Let's get to it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, y'all. So, how are we all doing? Let's let's do a quick check-in. It is mid-April, which is crazy. And mid-April happens to be like tax season. Taxes are due here in the U.S. And I know my CPA friends out there, those accountants are just like counting down the hours. Hours at this point until they can breathe again. Just a little bit, right? And though it's spring, spring hasn't quite sprung here in the Midwest. But I have spied with my little eye some baby sprouts coming from the trees. And I I am here for that. I am ready. I am over these bare trees, y'all. I want to see green from left to right. Bring it on. Also, right now in the nation's capital here in the U.S. of Washington, D.C., the ADAA conference, that's the Anxiety and Depression Conference of America, is going on with so many great talks happening knowledge being shared, literature being reviewed, hope being found. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So I hope that everyone that's in attendance are having a safe and fulfilling time as learning continues to expand for them. And I have to say, y'all, I am excited too because today, in addition to bringing you this great episode, while I'm not at ADAA, which, you know, cue the tears because I would love that. But I'm also really excited because in addition to bringing this episode to you, I'm diving into training myself today with the esteemed Bronwyn Schreier and Katie Merritt. And the fam, we got to hear from Bronwyn on trauma and OCD. That was episode 35 here in season one for anybody that may have missed it. And I am just psyched to be able to take this ICBT training through OCD training school. So. Just a reminder, they are going to be launching an ICBT home study course soon that I think is going to be so, so helpful. A fantastic resource for clinicians trying to build up their competency in ICBT. And I love that that's going to be a resource available for folks. All righty. So today is part three of our Autism and OCD mini series here with Dr. Jeremy Schumann. And y'all, let me just brag on my friend for a moment here. Okay. Isn't he great? And I didn't realize this until today, Jeremy, but you actually got your doctorate from IU. Yo, that's Indiana University, which means, Jeremy, we have a Hoosier connection and I'm tickled. I love it. How has this not come up? How has Indiana not come up? Probably uh, easily. It's easily not come up, but I love that he got his doctorate through IU. That's that's really fun. I found that out through IOCDF and I was like, look at you. Look at you, doc. But Jeremy has been a phenomenal advocate and voice for neurodiversity, affirming therapies, social justice at large. He's put so much intentional thought and time and research into not only these talks, but just the work he does overall. He's very thoughtful in the way that he approaches his work and we are better for it. So thank you, Jeremy, for all of that. I think my husband actually said it best. He was like, Jeremy is just such a great teacher. And my husband, y'all, bless his heart, he listens to each and every episode. And he's really learned a lot more about OCD through the course of this podcast. He's also been on the podcast a couple of times himself. And so I always love hearing his feedback because he's not coming at this from the clinical world as a practitioner and 
So the things that make sense and fit for him are sometimes different than what makes sense and clicks for me. And so it's been really wonderful hearing his feedback. And I agree with him. Jeremy has such a great way of articulating. He shares information, but I just feel like the way that he shares it too is so approachable. It's so clear and articulating these different concepts in a way that you, I, anybody can just really sit down and wrap your mind around it. So I really appreciate that. And so I'm super thankful for this opportunity I've had to run this mini-series with Jeremy. And y'all, I'm excited to say uh, this isn't the end for Jeremy and me. I'm also really excited to share that Jeremy and I will be leading a support group at this year's 28th annual OCD conference, which will be in San Francisco. And we will be running a support group for recognizing OCD as neurodivergence. So I'll just say this, y'all. Jeremy and I didn't dive into this specific topic because, believe you me, we could have just made a whole three-week series out of this topic alone. But I'm thrilled to have the opportunity at the invitation of Jeremy and the generosity of the International OCD Foundation to hold space for this important discussion and provide support to the OCD family here. So that is really, really exciting. And with that, let's get to today's episode, shall we? You're like, yeah, I'm here for it. (laughs) So for today, we are zooming in, y'all. Usually we're zooming out. So isn't this something? Look at that. Look at that. We're so versatile. (laughs) But today we're zooming in using that really helpful foundation from part one and that liberation-oriented lens from part two to discuss some of the controversies surrounding autism and OCD. So let's get zoom zooming, y'all, because there's much to discuss. Hello. Hello. Can I just launch into it? Yeah, go for it. So, Nicole, this is like my favorite point to make. This is the thing I've been trying to shout from the rooftops that I'm really glad to be able to be on your podcast to hopefully just keep spreading this message out. Mm -hmm. So what is OCD? OCD is when we respond to these really uncomfortable internal experiences with the safety behavior, and the safety behavior takes away some of that anxiety, which creates a negative reinforcement loop. So I have to do the safety behavior over and over and over again to to achieve that feeling. Mm -hmm. Where do those uncomfortable experiences come from that give us that anxiety to begin with? Well, it depends who you ask here, but mm-hmm. maybe something in your neurology, maybe something, you know, the ICBTers think we're inferring this out of other experiences, not necessarily saying that neurology is not a part of that. An appraisal model might say that we have misinterpreted experiences that are relatively normal. Mm-hmm. Well, one point that I think has been so useful in being able to understand why someone with OCD believes in their obsession is when we see this overlap between autism and OCD, mm-hmm. all of the invalidation that happens about these autistic traits mm-hmm. leads to distrust of self. Mm-hmm. When you say these lights are killing me and everyone else seems fine, you mm-hmm. think, what's wrong with my eyes? Maybe mm-hmm. I have a health issue. Mm-hmm. Or what's wrong with me as a person? Maybe I'm not trustworthy. Maybe I'm a bad person. Maybe I'm weak. Mm -hmm. When you melt down over and over again, because why is everyone else able to handle this? Oh, there's a lot of uncomfortable sensory and social stuff happening in these instances is leading me to melt down. Maybe I'm not in control of myself the way that other people are. Well, there was a degree of truth to that. I found myself melting down more. But given the environments that I thrive in, I melt down no more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. So this difference led to some confusion. And I explain this confusion away with the story. And the story becomes the grounds for my compulsion. Right. So we see this, this confusion that comes from repeated difference and not being able to really make sense of what the nature of this difference is. Mm-hmm. And then even further with invalidation that results in distrust of self. And mm-hmm. thinking that you must be the problem. These are precursors for the OCD. Mm-hmm. This is where our OCD work can be enhanced, not just through understanding that we may not get the the inhibitory learning 
desired outcome that we were hoping for, Mm -hmm. but also in that to understand the obsession, we shouldn't just brush by where it came from and only focus on reducing the compulsion. We should also do more psychoeducation about how this autistic trait led to a social disability, led to a, a disconnect between environment and need and how we explained that that disconnect through a story that provides grounds for needing a compulsion. That's convoluted. That is, that's the important point I want to make. I, I love that point. And I think that it is a very important point. I tracked it a thousand percent, but <laughs> this is my world. But, but absolutely, I think that's really powerful understanding that these different, like you said, precursors of these different autistic traits that are fodder, they are fodder for OCD to go wild with, right? right. Because the formula right. Right. is there and handed to OCD on a platter. So if you have the neurochemistry that, like you said, there's different things that people attribute. No one combination has been proclaimed as how we get OCD, right. but family environment, you know, family history, biology, neurology, different environmental factors that can be reinforcing. And look at this, look at the societal reinforcement of these different factors, whether your home environment is reinforcing that or not. This is how society expects us to present where we are expected to fit when we're expected to hit milestones. Yes, it's a range, but it's it's still a particular range for a particular expectation. And so being able to understand that point is really important. Also, you know, OCD can run amok with taking something that was stimming, that was regulatory, Mm -hmm. and grow it into excess where now it's distressing and haunting to the person even of this, Mm -hmm. ah, because they're not able to get that function out of it, out of that behavior anymore. So restoring some of that also requires an ability to trust yourself and that your needs matter. The, the conclusions you came up with are good enough. You don't have to vet them past somebody else to get a stamp of approval. And so that self-advocacy and that sense of agency, again, is so, so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I say that, you know, you use that word fodder. I like using that. The traits in autism are fodder for the obsession in the way of that invalidation and, and difference leads to confusion. And we come up with obsessive stories. But then you're also getting at how it's fodder for compulsion that neuroticism and uh, preferring things to be the exact same way every time and doing stimming in repetitive ways and all or nothing thinking about things leads to compulsive ways of behaving. You do repeated compulsive patterns. Why am I doing this? Well, it doesn't seem that anyone else is doing this. The reason I'm doing this is because it protects me from obsession And so, yeah, we got this perfect storm where we can develop OCD through through these traits. It's just the tool that explains the uncertainty in this in this system. You know, you know, we're grasping for that. Why do I do this? Well, it's hard to say I'm compulsive for X reasons or I don't trust myself for Y reasons. Right. It makes more sense to say, well, the way that I always think, let's fit it into that framework. Yeah. So let's talk about masking for a moment, if we can. There are times, for example, my son Luke, I was talking about him in part one, he was able to go in and get very messy and goopy during OT after having gymnastics, right? He was not masking that he was able to tolerate it because he had preloaded himself with the right sensory input to be able to tolerate it. But there can be times, especially when we look at peer learning, or certain settings. And this can happen within OCD as well, where we can have certain ways that our OCD plays out. But in certain settings, we might override that Mm -hmm. for the sake of appearances, peers not wanting to look silly. And so when we think about masking, that certainly happens too for autistic people. And so can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah, so just to define masking there, masking is just inauthenticity about what you are displaying in your personality versus what you're experiencing on the inside. And it's 
adaptive a lot of the time. If you go into a job interview, Mm -hmm. you should go in with your best foot forward and making sure that your outfit is exactly the way you want, not the way you typically would dress, that (laughs) your smile is on point the whole time, not Mm -hmm. your casual facial expression, Mm -hmm. that your handshake is strong, that your questions are on point, and that you don't show signs of your emotions very much. It's a job interview. They're looking for how could you perform if we ask you to be inauthentic and we ask you to just put forward this super professional thing? So that's like adaptive version of masking. But we have other forms of masking that maybe are obvious to people, too. If you're a teenager and you have to go approach a new group of friends, people mm-hmm. you want to become closer with, but you only maybe know one person there, you go up and you talk with them. You're going to take on some of the traits of the group. You're going to mimic a little bit the way that they talk, the way that they hold themselves, the way that they dress, because it's going to help you be accepted into that group. And to some extent, that's just good social skills. It's going to help everyone feel comfortable around you. And it's going to give you guys some shared identity to connect around. It's not entirely bad Mm -hmm. if you can be flexible about it. If you have more and more of your identity come out over time and get accepted that you'll feel great about those relationships. Or if you have relationships at home that are more intimate than those acquaintanceships and you can be just totally authentic at home. So like masking is adaptive, but also masking is exhausting. If you have to be in a job interview 24 seven, it's going to wear you out. If you have to be around people where you're still putting your best foot forward or you're not showing truly who you are all the time, Mm -hmm. it's going to wear you out. Everybody has these experiences. If what you're masking is your need for sensory stimulation or your discomfort around sensory stuff that's going on around you or, or social stuff that's going on around you, you might be in a place where you are uncomfortable a lot of the time. And the main mask you might be wearing is everything is fine right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And that is the outcome that we're, that behaviorists are often looking for. I'm not asking you any questions about distress necessarily. I'm looking at how much work did you complete? How much work was the classroom able to complete with you in it? How many disruptions per hour? How much of the teacher's time did I use? And mm-hmm. if I can say, well, this feels horrible, but I got my work done. I come home at the end of the day. I cry, I hate myself, I hate my life, I feel suicidal and I don't want to go back to school. But then when I get to school, I don't want to be a problem. So put on the happy face, get my work done, meltdown on the inside. We might not identify that student as having a problem and that student is having a very big problem. Mm-hmm. So that student is, is masking. Too much masking leads to burnout. We try to use these engagement with special interest and stimming to get some energy back to be able to keep on with difficult things. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's say that your middle son, he does all this great regulating activity, then he goes to OT, he's able to stay regulated all the way through OT. He wasn't masking because he really did get some sense of enjoyment. But there's another element in there as well, which is that he knew if he tells the OT, this is really uncomfortable, what the OT is going to say back to them is this is optional, you can pull back. Also, that the OT is going to say, I I understand that this is really uncomfortable for you. What do you want to do? Do you want to go forward? Do you want to go back? This this makes sense. And that's an acceptable response. And if you have tears in your eyes as you want to go forward with this and you're saying, I choose to go forward or I choose to pull back, I'm going to say, I'm meeting you where you're at. Your emotions are all acceptable to me. You don't have to hide any of that in my presence. So as we were getting on for this phone call today, I was telling you about how I've just moved to a new office and how I get very dysregulated by all this change that's around me. And you're a new acquaintance in my life, a new friend, and we've had some good conversations before this one, but I come into it trying to be very unmasked about it. Oh, I'm very anxious about this conversation. Oh, I didn't eat a good breakfast this morning because my stomach gets upset by by this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to hide any of that from you. I, I just choose not to do that in most places in my life, because masking is just exhausting. And yeah, that's what masking is. So if we're going for like uh, inhibitory learning approach to any of these behavior changes that we're trying to do, we're asking for distress tolerance. And a lot of times we're asking for some degree of holding back the behavior that you would rather be showing. We're asking for a degree of that masking. So it's just good to be able to be flexible as we choose that and figure out 
why am I doing it? Who am I doing it for? What outcomes am I expecting out of that? So I just wanted to at least touch on what masking is, define that term. I had actually written down and then you said that same word. And I was like, look how we're like vibing on this wavelength. Yeah. I mean, it can become a question of flexibility versus masking, right? Like, am I being flexible or am I masking? Masking requires some flexibility, even if it's very, very hard. And that's part of why it can be so exhausting. But at the same time, flexibility can be different than masking. And so both can happen. There can be a combination of the two. And it's something to be aware of. I have run into situations not with this current OT, and I am not dissing any of the amazing providers we've had. I've I've had just the pleasure of working with a dynamic team with my kiddos. But I do remember a couple of years ago, an OT coming out and my son was in tears. He is very internally motivated. And so even if you're like, you seem really upset, maybe we should take a break. He'll get upset. No, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. And it's really just that he so wants to succeed, right? That really we want to support that. And sometimes it's our our distress of, oh, it's hard to see you so upset. So I kind of, you know, that we have to be aware of. The goal is that he wants to keep trying and that I can handle my anxiety if I feel anxious about how upsetting that is. But also he can become more flexible and learn. Sometimes when I ask for help, that really does help. And I get a little breather and then it's easier to think. So we get to work together on that. But I remember an OT back in the day came out he was alligator tears and she was like you know we didn't really have a good session she was brand new to working with him and I was like really what does that mean you know because this is why we're here in OT our goal is learning how to be able to self-advocate if he said no and refused to do a task well he exercised some agency I'm not mad about that at the same time It doesn't mean like we just go and sit in the corner of the gym the whole time at at the OT gym. And so we were talking and there were just a lot of different aspects of it. And I said, what was your goal in wanting him to join you there? Like this, this activity could have been really helpful in meeting one of his treatment plan goals. But what was your goal in doing it and helping us to understand sometimes we get into this power struggle about something. That isn't even the goal. It's not going to be the same function and purpose for this person. There are like so many different ways that we could probably approach that. And more than any of that, once we build a relationship, we probably could do that same task once we have a relationship there. But this is new. This is new to you. This is new to that person. And so acknowledging that anxiety and going, okay, so how do we even say no? Because it's a form of self-advocacy in a way that is respectful, that is heard, because I think she fully expected me to be like, you need to do that. I can't believe you didn't do that. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I, it sounds like he told you respectfully. She was like, what? But we, as we worked together and they built that mm-hmm. relationship, I think that was a very good learning experience for her. And also a good moment for me to go, I'm not going to just throw this, this person out as this isn't going to work, this fit isn't going to work, because there was a missed understanding. It's an opportunity for us to communicate and all be able to advocate and be on the same page. And so, yeah, I mean, I I, I do think that for any of us, masking is so exhausting. And when we think about OCD, even so often people can get that imposter syndrome feeling. Well, that is that that Mm -hmm. fear of what if I'm masking and I'm not who I think I am, right? Exhausting. So I am really glad that we brought that up. The Devin Price book on masking autism is a great read for anyone who's interested in that topic a lot further. Okay. There's worksheets and stuff in his book there as well. Awesome. I'll link that. I'll link that on the blog. Oh, that, that takes us into another topic about underdiagnosis of autism in women, or I guess we should just say controversy. Yes. So women, the underdiagnosis in women and girls, how these different autistic traits can present. Well, we should say the controversy around the underdiagnosis or the controversy around diagnosis because autism is so heterogeneous and it gets diagnosed differently by different providers. And we see that there are in, you know, in the DSM, it would seem like there are a lot more autistic males than females. But if you ask other researchers, they say possibly maybe there's even more autistic females than males, like a four to three ratio I recently read. But 
I, that doesn't mean that, that I'm buying any of that literature, but what I do buy is that there is disagreement in how autism gets diagnosed. And because so much of the diagnosis has been around the problems that other people perceive with the autistic individual, mm -hmm. we see an underdiagnosis because of gender roles, mm -hmm. because girls and women are socialized to be more complacent and compliant and get along and be more socially oriented and drilled on how to do social niceties and do more communication strategies to facilitate social interactions. Mm -hmm. So a lot of masking in that way is just a learned social skill mm -hmm. that, that gets reinforced in women and girls. And so they learn to mask any difficulties that they might have with these issues. They don't get picked up in early intervention. And then down the line, they find themselves saying, why do I have difficulties with sensory issues all over? Why do I have difficulties in every social situation that I'm in? Why do I have difficulties with my executive functioning that lead to career issues? All throughout my life, I've been okay, but I've struggled in every single area. I can't find anything to pin down about why this might be happening. Mm -hmm. And they recognize over time, well, I'm putting so much effort into these things. These mm -hmm. things that come very naturally to others are very, very effortful to mine. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about things like sensory issues, preference for sameness, being more overwhelmed by social things, these are, everyone has had some experience with these. Mm -hmm. um, when they cluster together, it, it can look, you know, it, we, we call it something that is deserving of some support there. So because women are socialized to mask more and find success with their masking, they may not have identified the deficit at all until they're much older and they start asking themselves these questions about why are things so difficult for me? These things that come naturally and seem easy to others feel very effortful to me. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the same kinds of things that other people have problems with. So why am I so exhausted by social situations? A lot of people say they're exhausted by social situations, but why can I not function for three days afterwards? Mm -hmm. But but I have friends, so no, that's why no one's picking up on this. Well, think about it this way. If, you're, if you drive an old car mm -hmm. to work and it breaks down all the time mm -hmm. and every time you pull out of your driveway, it thunks. And every time you are driving, there's a problem with the brakes and it breaks down on the side of the road more days than not. Mm -hmm. And so at work, they're starting to get mad at you. And they're saying, you've got to make it in on time. You've got to leave early. you got to take your car for maintenance the way everyone else here does. You're not the only person here with car problems. Other people here have car problems too. They all have figured out how to take care of it. You're going to get fired if you don't take care of it. Mm -hmm. So you do everything you can. You try to leave early. You try to go get it fixed. And, and you just can't seem to get on top of it. So one day your, your car breaks down again and you know that you're going to get fired if you show up late. So you call your boss and you say, I was leaving an hour early and my car broke down again and I don't have any way to get to work. I know that, you know, you could pick me up and get me to work on time. Can you swing by the house and pick me up so I'm not going to be late? And the boss says, okay, this time I'll do it for you. And they come and pick you up and you get into their car and it pulls out of the driveway, no thunk. And they tap on the brakes and no squeal. And they make it to, to work. And their car didn't break down on the side of the road even once. And you say, I thought you said you had car problems too. I thought you said you have to plan ahead for things. He said, I, I do. My car broke down four times last year. It was in the shop four times. I, I take care of my car. And you realize, oh, my car goes to the shop every week. My car breaks down every day. We both have car problems, but we don't have the same problem here. Right. And, and so you'll see women who have masked saying, oh, I have the same problems as everyone else. Mm -hmm. Over time, starting to realize, wait a minute, my problems are not the same. In order for me to get to work on time, it's like I had to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. And all you had to do was set your alarm five minutes earlier. Right. They're not the same problem. Right. And so, again, because women are taught not to complain and taught all these social skills, they don't get picked up on. And then they have to go talk to their doctors later and say, seems like this is affecting Everywhere in my life, this is a big enough problem that every place in my life is affected by it, but it's not a big enough problem that I get a diagnosis. What's up with that? And then now we are seeing a lot of people now say, 
well, I think you do warrant a diagnosis of autism or ADHD. It's so much so that we've had a run on the controlled substances that are prescribed for ADHD because so many more women have gotten diagnosed with it as the, the difficulties of pandemic have weighed on people mostly. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that process. You know, I often will talk with people, with clients, even in terms of their anxiety. You are working so hard, but you don't always realize how much harder you're working, too, when it's cultivated. It's not like this is a week of the car breaking down. This is I tried this. It didn't work. I tweaked this. That seemed to help. And now I need to do this to try and make this work. And over time, it accumulates until we have the snowball turning into an avalanche, right? And realizing the difference of I'm at the avalanche level. And sometimes until you feel a little bit of the lightning of that load, you still don't even get how much harder you're working until some of that heaviness is gone. And then you're like, well, shit, that was working really hard. Add in interoceptive differences and add in distrust of self through chronic invalidation. And it becomes all the more difficulty to self-identify where you're at in that. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good point. So I want to add in one more piece of terminology here that I think is really interesting, which is called the broad autism phenotype. So Rudder and Lord have done some of our research on like autism diagnostic categories. And as we moved from DSM-4 to DSM-5, there was a lot of talk about how we might put autism on a spectrum, maybe more like that linear spectrum like we were talking about before. It doesn't make as much sense as thinking of many dimensions and many spectrums. Right. But we got away from some of the, the multiple diagnoses and, and we put autism as a diagnosis with levels. And the levels are how much support you need in either this social domain or the repetitive, restrictive behavior domain. And level three is like, I need an intense amount of support. Level two is I need a moderate amount of support. Level one is I need some support. Mm -hmm. Is there level zero? There's no such thing as level zero because we're defining these terms by how much support you need. Mm -hmm. But there are certainly people who we we have this continuous distribution of these traits across diagnoses throughout the whole population. They tend to cluster in folks with autism, but they're still distributed throughout the non-autistic right. population. Right. And there are there's this idea of the broad autistic phenotype, which is to say that we have these traits, but sub-threshold to where you would need any support or where you would warrant a diagnosis. So in the medical model, this person does not get a diagnosis. In the social disability model, we might say that there is room for this person to have some supports if we could understand perhaps how they climb Mount Everest to get to work on time, for example. Mm -hmm. So all of this question about should I get this diagnosis, should I pursue assessment, should I not get diagnosis, and then let's say I do decide that I want to get diagnosis, what do I want to get out of that? Am I looking for any sort of social services out of it? If I'm not looking for that kind of support, Am I just looking for validation? Am I looking for an explanation that makes me feel more okay with myself? Some assessors worry that there's a secondary gain. What you're looking for is an excuse. You don't want to have to do the hard work to try to function at a better level. Your life would get better if you would try to work on your resilience and your distress tolerance. But here, if you can use this label of I have autism, then now you're not going to feel like you have to do any work. You're saying, no, this is going to change if I work on it. We just talked about that whole guardrailing phenomenon. That's right. not how I think of things. Right. Uh, further, I don't think that that's most people's Intent. I think most people are doing it more on this identity level than in the I'm using this as an excuse level or I'm going to try to get disability money or extra time on tests at school. But so there's so then we have this other question then say I decide to get diagnosed. There's a reason I want to do it that is not a, some sort of secondary gain thing. Then who do I go to for diagnosis? Do I go to someone who is advertising that they're neurodiversity affirming and I figure is going to slap the diagnosis on anyone who who fits this broader autistic phenotype? Or am I going to go to someone who's very medical model who might look at someone in broad autistic phenotype and think, well, you don't meet this level of severity that I'm going to say. So no, you don't have autism. And now we have this yes or no. In, In the neurodiversity affirming community, we do tend to think about autism as a binary. You have it or you don't, but we tend to think that 
that broad autistic phenotype is a version of having autism. It's not a less than, it's just autism that's heterogeneous or in the medical community, we might say that is unlikely to warrant diagnosis. So we see women who are unmasking. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of people saying, well, if you can juggle all the balls in your life, I don't care how hard it is for you to juggle uh, because this is going to be part of the phenotype that it's not pathological and it's it's fairly common. And so we see all these people saying like self-diagnosis and self-diagnosis is valid. Probably a lot of them are in that area where there's no clarity between the two communities about what is most beneficial for folks. And, and I, you know how I operate by now, informed consent. I'm going to talk very complicated. You're going to get as much of it as you can swallow, and then you're going to understand this better for, your, for yourself and feel comfortable with your identity, even if that identity is like, oh, this is what my profile looks like. I don't know if I love the definition of autism or not autism, but my profile is one where I'm hyposensitive to sound and hypersensitive to touch and an introvert who loves to talk but gets their energy worn out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, my understanding of the phenotype. So you had asked me earlier if I knew what the broad autistic phenotypes were. And it's making perfect sense on why it was an inference, but not something that was directly communicated. My kids, there's two routes for getting assessed here in the state of Indiana, at least where we live. And so there's a local place that has a very, very long waiting list. There's places that they're basically ABA centers that will give you a diagnosis. It means nothing that goes nowhere. And then there's the children's hospital from the capital city in the state. And that is who we went through. And for both of my boys, when we had their evaluation, and you have a couple different meetings and whatnot, where they do a diagnostic interview, and then they actually do their battery of testing and scoring, neither, neither psychologists, and they had different psychologists that tested them through this medical children's hospital, gave a type. And for the first child that was assessed, I said, you know, I am curious what the type, and they were like, we don't find it helpful to share types, because... Even any given person fluctuates. There are certain things or certain times developmentally where we're going to need more or less support. And, you know, you got the diagnosis. So if you need support, you got support, right? But they were very clear on not communicating types. Whereas other folks that had a medical diagnosis through the route up here with a longer waiting list did get a type. And I remember thinking, yeah, I, I could see... Whether it's the person themselves identifying my capacity is this, my level one, my level two. I think caregivers, family members can get that solidified for them of, oh, they're never going to have it easier than this moment here. And and they can kind of get mentally mm-hmm. stuck there. And so I can see the benefit of not not having that directly spelled out because... There's no one box to check that you're just going to be in this one place in this one space forever and amen. But at the same time with my second son, they did, even though it's not technically a part of the DSM anymore, they were like, he's more of an Aspie, you know, which in terms of Aspie, that would be a term for Asperger's presentation, which used to be a part of the diagnostic language and isn't anymore. But a lot of people that identify with it are like, I'm an Aspie. Like, that's how they identify where I have Asperger's. Yep. And there's something that is edifying about their brain working a certain way. But it depends. Again, it's it depends person to person. You know, I, I might like being referred to as a mom. I might like being referred to as an OCD specialist. I might like being referred to as a daughter. It doesn't define me inclusively just one term. I'm going to make a point on that Asperger's thing, which yeah. you may or may not love. Oh, that's fine. Okay. So Asperger was a Nazi doctor, and the Nazis killed people where they consider them to have, quote, mental defects. And so he said, these are not your typical mental defect people. These are people who have souls, potentially, and let me do medical experimenting on them. And so his name is not something that we tend to like to honor. And your analogy about woman or, you know, I'm a mom. Imagine saying, well, it does carry, but I'm a woman carrying so much stigma that you weren't comfortable with saying I'm a woman. You would only be comfortable with saying I'm a mom because I don't want to be seen as a woman, but a mom I'm okay with. It's sort of like saying, 
I'm not comfortable with being called autistic because there's an overlap of intellectual disability and autism. Well, I have no language impairment, so I'm not comfortable with that. I'm Asperger's. It, it, it to me, further stigmatizes I'm not like you in a way that doesn't make any sense for me. Yeah. Personally. Well, I appreciate shedding some light on it. And it just goes to show, I mean, there's so many, we talked about this in the intersection series too, with the BIPOC community. So much research has come on the backs of people being mistreated in unethical ways for different research that there was a lot going on during World War II, but even before then. And that's really hard. Now, nowadays, if you want to even do a, a basic research project at a college campus, at least here in the States, there is a human ethics community that is going to make sure that you are not being unethical and you're treating people for their humanity and not like they're lab rats or anything like that. But there's so much research that we have in medicine and mental health as well that come on the backs of these really terrible experimentations. And so that I was I was ignorant to the fact that Asperger was a Nazi. But it's like it, at the same time, I'm like, I guess I'm not surprised considering where a lot of our earlier, again, research comes from pre-Human Ethics Committee. And so that is, and, and that's a real challenge too. We talked about it a little bit with ABA as well, because when you look at the history of the dehumanizing and what benefit can we use this for, for ourselves, because we're not even going to recognize your souls, let alone your humanity. Yeah. You know, with ABA, so Lavas was one of the original authors of ABA. He was also one of the original authors of conversion therapy to try to turn gay people straight. You know, when you talked about it, I was sitting, I even wrote a note. I was like, isn't this just conversion therapy? Yeah, I was like, the same thing, right? Like, you know, denying who you are at what cost? He became anti-conversion therapy later. But again, it's like, you have to go, if you go way back to the origins, it, it looks ugly. And then it got better from there. Yeah. Thank you so much for having the dialogue. This, we've had a lot of emails back and forth, even in having discussions around different aspects of this. And I think it's so important. I have been very open with the community here that I've lived experience of OCD, but I also have neurodivergent neurotypes multiply in my family. And, you know, I, I love it. I love working with autistic clients. Mm -hmm. This is just, it's, it's so important for us to understand the experience of one another, just like I was saying before, of, if I told my husband, I'm feeling this, and he's like, you don't feel that way. I'd be like, excuse me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's so important for us to be able to understand each other. And just having this conversation, I hope it can continue to be an ongoing conversation. would love to have you back anytime, Jeremy, to continue these important conversations, because I think it's, it's really beneficial to our community in understanding how we can support our loved ones or even ourselves in affirming our own neurology. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. I really enjoyed talking with you and I appreciate having an informed person to have some back and forth with and bless these ideas out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Well, family, what a discussion, huh? First of all, again, I cannot thank Jeremy enough for this dialogue. These three episodes have been so helpful, and Jeremy has been incredibly generous with his time and his knowledge. And in many ways, I feel like this discussion, this conversation just started. But the good news is this isn't goodbye. So Jeremy and I will be teaming up in San Francisco, as I mentioned at the top of the show. And he knows he has an open invitation to come back and hang with our fam here during future seasons. So thanks again to you, Jeremy, and thank you to you as well, fam, for joining us because you're such an important part of this conversation. Also, I wanted to mention that Jeremy has a mailing list through his practice where you can hear about future trainings. And in August, actually, he'll be kicking off a 14-week seminar on neurodiversity affirming OCD treatment. So if you found this mini-series helpful, and you want to learn more or follow Jeremy to learn more about his future trainings and seminars, you can head on over to ocdfamilypodcast.com to learn more, and I will have all the links to get you where you need to go. 
Also, a few quick housekeeping notes, y'all, because nothing says family like a chore chart, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kind of kidding. But no, y'all, I just want to review a few notes here. I'm not assigning chores because we're a family, but I'm not your mama. So, you know, take of it what you will. But here are a few things that I wanted to draw your attention to. So, for a reminder, the blog over at OCD Family Podcast has all the citations and resources, and you can find out more about Jeremy's training seminar, the mailing list, all of that. You can also find out more about articles or research referenced during the shows, like, hey, ladies, when Jeremy referenced these differences in the autism diagnoses within the gender binary population, I have links to those articles where you can check it out and say, do I buy into it or not? And so I try to cite as much as possible. Also, Jeremy and I were chatting. So one of the infographics I shared during part one on the blog post and we referenced, we talked about it in terms of the spectrum as not linear. And so I've had a little bit of a hard time tracking exactly who really first conceptualized this graphic. But I think the art of autism does a really nice job of helping explain how the spectrum is not linear and actually has a, a comic strip that I think is really helpful. And I'm going to I'm going to post that on the blog as well. So if you want to look that up in terms of understanding the differences of when we're talking about autistic phenotypes, different traits what that looks like. We can't really just sum it up in a line graph here. And so that circle chart we've talked about, well, I am still kind of on the hunt for like who originally first came up with this. I certainly know that a lot of people reference it. And so I wanted to share about at least the art of autism, which is an actually autistic voice and a, a helpful, really comic that Rebecca Burgess posted for people to better understand this. So wanted to highlight that for sure. Secondly, y'all, we are about a month away from my kiddos being on summer break. I am in denial. I cannot believe it. How did the school year fly by so fast? I swear. I blinked, y'all. I blinked. Boom. That's amazing. So with that, I just want to note that our regular OCD family gatherings as the OCD family community are going to shapeshift a bit for summertime. (laughs) Shapeshift. Side note, I just have to say my daughter has been like eating, breathing, sleeping in Kanto lately. I mean, we were late to the party. Yes, it came out a couple years ago, but better late than never. And we love ourselves some Lin-Manuel Miranda. So we're not mad about it. But between Camilo Madrigal and maybe Star Trek Picard, for any Trekkie fans out there, shapeshifting is just on the brain. So go with that. Yeah, we are shapeshifting for summertime. So what that means is the regular full-length episodes that are released every Friday will be drawing to a close for season one. And they will kick off, they will shapeshift into... A summer series that I'm calling the Water Cooler Chats. And these chats are aimed to be short, thought-provoking, learning applications, maybe a demonstration of a skill or two on a variety of topics that are relevant to our OCD family community and within a variety of modalities. So we're going to be focusing on some ERP things and on some ICBT concepts. How do I vary the exposure for our ERP homework? So we're going to have some tips and tricks coming your way on that. And these episodes, while they'll still be available for download through your favorite podcasting apps, they are also going to have a video component that is going to be available on YouTube if I can figure it all out. No, no, I'm going to figure it out, y'all. I promise. So it'll have a video version available on YouTube too. And I have been brainstorming and geeking out on some fun ways to bring this content to you. It's just going to be like those little refreshers, little idea boosts to help get you through the summer. Similar to, you know, if we're at the break room and we're all at the water cooler, we can exchange some pleasantries and give little brief updates and be on our way. Or, you know, Saturday morning soccer field around the uh, cooler. (laughs) Oh boy. If you know, you know, right? Parents, hashtag parent life, I tell ya. So I'm excited to bring these morsels of help your way this summer, as well as taking advantage of the extra family time with my kiddos. 
And then we will be resuming with the launch of season two into our full-length episodes in the fall. And that will fall toward the end of August. So we will have these shorts that you can listen to, but also we will be resuming with season two. And I can't wait. So look out for some fun advertising, some video bits, some bite-sized shorts just to give us some refreshers all summer long here at OCD Family Podcast. All right. Lastly, we are in the intrusive thought segment. And this is the segment where we talk about an application, how we can apply some of what we've discussed and practice it this week. So for today, I just want to take a moment to highlight and celebrate autistic culture. As we've noted throughout the series, April is Autism Acceptance Month. And so my charge to you, fam, is to seek out and find at least one new autistic content provider to like and follow, whether it's a podcast, YouTube channel, blog, social media influencer, whatever you fancy. And if you're not sure where to look, I'm also going to highlight a few shout outs here of some of my favorite accounts. But also searching a hashtag like actually autistic is a great way to find out more info. Because sadly, I have to say, and this, this happens, right, especially within different communities, some of the bigger organizations aren't actually being run by autistic folks. And if we're serious about wanting to hear and celebrate autistic voices, then we should listen to autistic voices, right? So I'm going to give some shout outs, but I encourage you to learn more and look into it for yourself as well. Hear people's stories. Validate their experiences. Hey, I see you, boo. Include their perspectives. Whether you're autistic or allistic, have autistic kids or not, the autistic community is just as much a part of this family as anyone else here in our global community. And we're better together. So let's put some intention into making some new friends, following new creators, and actually being better together, right? So for my quick spotlight, I want to highlight first, AutisticRealms.com. This content creator has become a friend. And, and you know what? I just can't say enough good things about the amazing content that she provides. You can also follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you go to her website, autisticrealms.com, you can get direct links to all of her handles. And of course, I'm also going to link you up over at the blog at ocdfamilypodcast.com too. So if you're driving or drifting off to sleep or exercising, which, hey, good on you. And you're like, oh, I want to check this out, but I can't write this down right now. Head on over to ocdfamilypodcast.com and you can find the links to her great work. But she's an amazing advocate for neurodivergence at large, especially within the framework of mental health and education, which any of us parents of neurodivergent kiddos know, school can be hard, hard. And she's a former educator, and she just does so much incredible advocacy around autism and OCD as well. So check her out over at AutisticRealms.com. You can like and follow her on social media and yeah, check her out. Also, Autistic Realms is teaming up with our OCD family member, Katie Monday, over at Autistic and Live in the Dream. And together, they're bringing us the Autistic Dream Realm Project. And what's really cool about this, y'all, is that the whole project is about autism and OCD. So the content could not be more on point for our OCD family community. And again, I'm going to have all the websites, the links, everything for not only Katie, but for this collaboration here for Autistic Dream Realm Project. So you can check that out at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. And they are really active on social media, too. So again, join us in, in celebrating these autistic voices and celebrating autistic culture and give them a like and a follow. Lastly, my last account that I have enjoyed so much, and it's at Dr. Megan Neff's website, neurodivergentinsights.com. She is doing great work. She is an autistic ADHDer who is also a clinical psychologist, but she has a really interesting story, and much like we were talking earlier, and she shares on neurodivergentinsights.com. She got her doctorate, like, the highest degree for mental health in education and still didn't know she was an autistic ADHDer 
until finding out more information through TikTok and Instagram. And while we say, hey, don't just diagnose yourself based on a TikTok and Instagram, we can't deny that sometimes the content that is getting out there is more accessible than even in these higher learning institutions. So she is on a mission, y'all, to educate and provide support, resources, training, better understanding. And I really, really love her work. She also has a fair amount of information on autism and OCD, as well as other common overlapping neurodivergent presentations. She does a lot of really helpful infographics, as actually all of the accounts I mentioned today do. And you can also follow her on Facebook, Instagram, her website, you name it. So I highly recommend her as well. But this is my charge to you, fam. Celebrate. If we're going to celebrate, we got to celebrate by elevating autistic educators, autistic content creators, autistic influencers, autistic voices, autistic friends. It's important. So if you were with us last week, we walked through some different terms again. Today, we talked through some of them. Are they harmful or helpful? And we talked about how we discussed them a little more this week. Well, you might be thinking, okay, we discussed some, like we talked about Asperger's, we talked about some of this, but at the same time, do you have any questions, terms that you're still not sure about, maybe still haven't heard of? Here's a extra credit for you. If you still have any questions about any of the terminology that we just observed or our initial impressions on, is this harmful or helpful? I'm going to encourage you to circle or note that in some way, and then Search your new autistic friend's platform for better understanding. Because chances are, there's a lot of content out there. And while I could tell you, I want to elevate and celebrate autistic voices. Hear from an autistic person why this bothers them or why it doesn't. They can speak for themselves. And like Jeremy mentioned over the course of the series, there are so many prolific writers and amazing content out there. So got a question? ask. Like person-first language, people with autism. Is it harmful or helpful? It's actually fairly insulting. Why? Let people speak for themselves. Learn why. And you take the time to learn why. Are you a professional like me that learned in grad school that identity-first language, meaning saying autistic instead of person with autism, is wrong? I mean, again, Dr. Neff speaks to this. We can learn a lot in grad school. But it can't replace the understanding of lived experience for autistic people. It can't replace autistic voices. And this, y'all, this is how we help break down stigmas. We communicate with each other. We honor and value what our neighbor has to say. And you might find, you know what, I ended up on the wrong side of this thing. Like, for example, Jeremy and I talked about Aspie's, right? Asperger's term. And then he talked about the history of Dr. Asperger. And I didn't realize the heinous history that that terminology and the lack of value that Dr. Asperger held for the autistic community at large, but maybe these, maybe they have a soul crew, got sifted out from the autistic community at large. I mean, listen, I don't like making mistakes. I've talked many times over the course of this season of how I'm a recovering perfectionist. I especially feel sheepish when a term that I've been using naively can be traced back to a Nazi that devalued this human life. I don't like making that mistake. And I suppose I could have edited it out. I could have been like, we'll just, you know, we'll just note this for future learning and I, I will learn from this, but I don't need to broadcast it, right? No, actually, I think it is important for me to broadcast it because first of all, it's authentic. I'm not going to always get it right. And... I think it's important, even if it's embarrassing, to show my growing pains and learning errors too. Because we don't know what we don't know. And here's the good news. We don't have to know everything, but we have to be willing to learn. And I'm a big supporter of using our mistakes well, applying it for better understanding so that we can then celebrate and elevate each person for exactly who they are. And when we do that, those stigmas that divide us, that isolate us, they break down. So you, me, let's be better together. I'll be here and you know where to find me. So I hope to see you back with us next week. And until then, let's celebrate each other together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you 
enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing's says family, like spilling the tea on autism and OCD. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.